Good, okay. Welcome to another episode of The Naked Voice. Today, we've got a very, very special guest, Lisa McLeod, global expert on purpose-driven business and author of no less than five books, including her bestseller, Selling with Noble Purpose. Lisa, good morning or good afternoon. It's good afternoon here. Good morning to you. How are you? Wherever you are in the world, hello. I've, it's, it's great to have you on, on our podcast. Um, I've obviously got the guys from Naked Health on, on the call as well, Raj, Russ and Paul, who's, who's our new member of the Naked uh, Colony, actually, who's, who's joined this week. So, uh, hi, Paul. <laughs> Morning. Morning, Lisa. Morning, everyone. Good morning, and I and I love that you're calling it a naked colony. I'm all off camera, and we're all getting, we're on audio, yeah. but I, I'm getting a visual here. Not all. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll turn the camera off. Just it's all good. <laughs> so, Lisa, why don't we start then by why don't you just give us a kind of a brief overview of your story and what you do? I mean, like given that very brief um, overview, um, um, but why don't you give us give us a bit more of your story? Yeah. So a lot of people, when they hear the title, my I've done a number of books, but my most popular one to date is Selling with Noble Purpose. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, what? Sales? Noble Purpose? Sales is like sleazy at, at worst, <laughs> transactional at best. But I don't believe that. And so how I've kind of ended up here in my career, I'll give you a short story Helping organizations sell with a noble purpose is a culmination of what was a personal, spiritual relationship journey in my, uh, you know, the more personal side of my life for greater purpose and meaning and combining that with my sales expertise. I'm a former Procter & Gamble sales trainer. I've owned a sales consultancy firm for quite some time. And I'm in my 50s now, and I was finally able to put those two things together because I did a study that confirmed what I had been feeling for a long time. And the study revealed that salespeople who have a purpose bigger than money, who truly want to improve the customer's life, who have a vision for their customer that maybe is even bigger and better than the customer has for themselves, those people actually outsell the salespeople focused on targets and quotas. So that's sort of the conceptual short version of how I got here. If you want, I can go into the longer version, which includes a lot of high school angst. But, you know, that's <laughs> well, maybe that, that sounds like it could be quite interesting. actually. And, and we obviously our paths crossed uh, many. It was quite a few years ago now. And, and, and thank you for the book, which I did read and enjoy very much. But we, our paths crossed in Big Pharma. I think it was Roche. I think we can say who it was. And uh, yeah, very, um, very impressed with not, not just your talk, but then how we implemented that whole kind of emotional selling um, process. So but so you were a Procter & Gamble sales trainer. Um, what about before that, Lisa? What, what did you, you don't have to go back as far as um, high school <laughs> angst. But, but, but what did you do, the sort of roles you did that, up to that point? Well, I want to tell you a story that'll help uh, put a, uh, some context on this. So when I was in college, I read my college newspaper every day. And I mentioned that I'm in my 50s. So for those of you who are younger than 40, there used to be this thing. It was paper. It had ads in it. It had stories in it. It was called the newspaper. And we read it every day to stay informed. So when I was in college, I read my paper every day and I loved that newspaper. It's where the bar specials were, what the pizza specials were, what the sports scores were, what bands were coming. And so one day in the paper, I saw an advertisement 
and it was a recruiting ad to sell advertising for this newspaper. And I thought, I was made for this. And so I went in, I interviewed, I got the job because the thing is, I believe that as a business, you should be in this college newspaper. So I was what I now refer to as a TB, which is a true believer. And so I loved that job. And that was the first, that was my first real sales job where I instinctively was excited about what I was selling. But then I remember there was this moment when I came back to the office and our then sales manager, all of 21 years old, had put up this chart on how everyone was doing on their quota. And this is before CRMs and all of that. And I remember seeing the numbers and I had been like, everyone needs to be in this paper. Oh, this is the best paper ever. And then I came back to the office and I saw these numbers and I wasn't in first place. I was in second place. And so the competitiveness kicked into me. And I can still tell you the guy who was in first place, Scott Spencer. And this competitiveness kicked in on me. And what I didn't realize at that moment, and I think a lot of people that are listening to this can probably relate, that became this push-pull battle between, wow, I believe in what I'm selling so much and I want to help people experience this versus I want to win and I want to be the best and it's all about me. And so what I didn't know at that moment was that was going to define a lot of my career and eventually become the basis for my work, which is how you can have both of those, a true noble desire to help others and also a competitive spirit that wants to be the best because those two things are not in conflict. And how long, Lisa, have you been doing the, the noble purpose and, and this current current path that you're on? How long have you been doing that now? About 10 years. When you and I met all those years ago, I had just written the first edition of Selling with Noble Purpose. And some of the first companies that embraced that were people in pharmaceuticals because it's not too hard to draw a line between mm -hmm. a drug that improves your life, saves your life, gives you greater mobility, eases your headaches, cures your cancer, you know, whatever it is, it's not too hard to draw a line from that to noble purpose. Because the reality is most of these pharmaceutical companies where the idea and the research for the drug originated was someone looking at a disease state and saying, we got to solve this thing or we can do better mm -hmm. on this thing. And so that was actually where some of the original research for selling with noble purpose came from was in that space. And it came from a study that I did with a big biotech company to determine the difference between the exceptional performers and the good performers. And the difference was that idea of noble purpose and the exceptional performers all carried a different level of emotion into every activity that they did because their sight line was around improving life for the patient. Great stuff. So you so you've got data and and, and sort of hard facts to really you know this isn't just a philosophy or a theory. Oh. Um, you know you can really back that up with 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 things that show this yeah. really does make a a big difference to the business aspect of, of of companies as well. It absolutely does. So I'll share with you three studies that are crucial in understanding the impact of leaning in to a purpose bigger than money. I call it a noble purpose and leaning into it with emotion. So study number one was done by the former CMO of Procter & Gamble, a colleague of mine, Jim Stengel. 
And what he found was organizations with a purpose bigger than money outperformed the market by over 350%. And that was a study of over 10,000 brands. So number one, you get improved organizational performance. Can you imagine in one company, they're all sitting around saying, how can we make more money? And another company sitting around saying, how can we make life better for customers? That second company is going to be more innovative. They're going to have a more compelling story for the market. And they're going to have better scientific breakthroughs, quite candidly. So study number two was from EY, which showed that companies with this sense of higher purpose experience greater customer engagement. Because imagine it, you have a sales and marketing team whose narrative is, we got to make money, we got to be number one. And you have another sales and marketing team whose narrative is, we're here to make a difference for our customers. That second team is going to have a completely different level of customer interaction and customer engagement, whether it's customers, a physician, customers, a big buying group or the end patient. So the second study really showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that these companies guided by this sense of higher purpose experience greater customer engagement. Now I'm going to give you more micro go to the third study, which is from Dr. Valerie Good at Michigan State University, who found that salespeople that have this greater sense of purpose experience greater tenacity and resilience. Because think about it, like, let's just say, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic where I can no longer take lunches into all these offices. I can no longer have the personal experience of interacting with people. If I'm just in it for me, at a certain point, I'm going to get tired of that. But if I know that what I'm selling actually improves people's lives and it's bigger than me, that's going to bring forth my best self. So you have it. Companies with a purpose bigger than money outperform their competition. They experience greater customer engagement and the salespeople experience more tenacity and resilience. So I guess as well, the benefit in sales is one thing, but I guess does it lead to better connection within an organization, maybe better staff retention and, and that sort of thing as well? Is that another benefit? Oh, absolutely. And it's really came true when we moved into this whole space where workers have more of a choice, because one of the things that happened during the pandemic, you know, they call it the great resignation, the great reshuffle, blah, blah, blah. What it actually was, was it was a great awakening. And I liken it to, at least in my country, this has only collectively happened. It's never happened in my lifetime. It happened, you know, in my parents' lifetime during World War II, when everyone sort of had this chance to think, you know, I might die tomorrow. What is my life? What does it mean? Why am I here? And so what's happened now, I liken it to like if you've ever had the death of a parent or you've had a big health scare or something like that, where you go, wow, what what am I doing with my life? Only what happened during the pandemic is it happened to everyone. And so when you talk about greater employee engagement, you basically have two models. You can say we're a company who's here to make money and you're a cog in our transactional machine. And if you play your cards right, you'll get some of the money and maybe a little, you know, fun work along the way. Or you can say we have a cause bigger than money here. We are improving people's lives in a fundamental way. Would you like to join us? And all the research tells us that if you are that second type of company, you will attract more top talent. And you will hold on to them. 
great stuff. Well, we've all worked for the for the company in the first example, that's for sure. So um, it's, it's nice to hear that there's a different model. Um, but, so we've talked about healthcare, um, Lisa, and Procter and Gamble, and obviously Bit of Roche. Tell us what other sort of businesses you, you've been working with over the last few years. So we've worked across a variety of industries, and typically we work with companies who are need a competitive advantage. Uh, if they're just selling widgets and their model is to be the lowest price widgets, probably not for us. But we've worked with companies like Salesforce. We work with LinkedIn. So LinkedIn's been very public about our work with them. And if you think about LinkedIn's larger purpose, they're there to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And they also sell ads on LinkedIn. They have a recruiter solution. But all of that is calibrated in towards we are doing meaningful work and they have quotas and they have targets and they're making a lot of money. It's all been very public. But what they want is they want every member of the LinkedIn team, whether you are selling ads for them, whether you're selling their recruiter solution, whether you're an IT person behind the scenes, they want every member of that LinkedIn team to understand you're part of something bigger than yourself. We have a bigger purpose here. And it's one of their big competitive advantages. One of the examples that we use in the book, Leading with Noble Purpose, is how LinkedIn overtook Monster.com. Because mm -hmm. Monster.com used to be a noble purpose company. Jeff Taylor and the original founders wanted to help people find better jobs. But what happened is Monster.com devolved into a very transactional company. And the organizational story became only about the quarterly numbers. And that's when LinkedIn cleaned their clock. Because LinkedIn said, oh, no, we have a larger purpose than just money. And all the research tells us what LinkedIn and others experienced, which is when you have a purpose bigger than money, you wind up making more money. Thank you. So I guess that my, our next question is um, two pronged, really, I guess. F first part is, is this approach sometimes met with skepticism? And I guess linked to that is maybe if you think about some organizations, you know, that uh, very scientific or even quite introvert in their in their kind of approach what happens there so it is absolutely met with skepticism and it is met with skepticism by two groups of people in particular people who are financially oriented and people who are scientifically oriented because when you talk about noble purpose and a purpose bigger than money and emotional selling it feels very gauzy it feels like what you know, money, you can count the money, you can measure the money, you can look at the science, you can measure the science. And so this oftentimes feels unmeasurable, but the results are absolutely measurable. And so I'll give you an example. I was working with a group of scientists uh, and doctors years ago, and they had a drug that showed some real clinical advantages over the competition. This particular drug was an arthritis drug and they showed a 10% difference in mobility in their drug in a number of particular patients. And so they're going around with their science saying 10%, 10%, 10%, and they weren't getting the traction that they thought they would because they had this proven, you know, science proven advantage over the competition. And so they brought me in 
And I said, well, 10%, you know, what does, what does a 10% difference in mobility mean? And they were like, well, you know, they went through all that. You can move your hand this way and this way versus this way and this way. And I was like, I'm still not getting it because I'm not a scientist. And one person said, it can mean the difference. Cause I asked, what can you do with the 10%? Like what, what do you do? And they said the 10% difference can mean the difference between being able to hold your fork and have the dignity of sitting at the table with your family and feeding yourself versus someone having to feed you. The whole room was silent. And I said, that's the story. That's the story. And so what we did, instead of them leading with 10%, here's all the scientific data and all, we said, what if you had something that could take someone from having to be fed to being able to maintain the dignity of holding their fork at the table with their family and being part of a family meal? Well, let us tell you about the science. Because the thing that they were so frustrated with is they said the science should stand alone. And that all sounds good, but the audience that you're talking to has lots of science and numbers coming at them every day. You wanna wake them up to the fact that all these numbers, there's a real live human being at the end of this. And when you paint that visceral picture of the human being, to use the science phrase, some very important things happen in your brain. When I paint that picture of that person who now has the dignity of sitting at the table, your frontal lobes light up. Dopamine mm-hmm. goes through your body. And so a lot of things happen that are actually going to enable you to better absorb the science because now it means something human. Sure, no, that makes complete sense. I think that's probably a good good time to pause a little bit. Maybe I bring in I bring in some of the uh, the naked guys on, on on the line as well, because we, as you know, we all work in in healthcare and deal with a lot of pharmaceutical brands in in all sorts of categories, from oncology to to also arthritis and and um, everything in between, really as well. So I, I was just going to ask if any of the guys have got any experiences or or any kind of nice case studies where the use of emotion led to better cut through, I guess, in, whether that's in terms of a brand launch or, or a relaunch or a creative campaign. Anybody got anything to add in terms of the use of emotion? Russ, yeah. you got your hand up? Uh, yeah, I remember quite a few years ago, we, um, I th- I think we were both working on it, Lee. Um, we were working on a, uh, a product which was for quite a, quite a rare disease. I only had a couple of other competitors and there really wasn't anything to choose between them so far as actual hard hard-nosed data was concerned they're all fairly identical um but the other two we, everything was very much it's kind of the uh pharma advertising of old if you like it was lots of sort of flying molecules and pages just crammed full of data but there just seems to be a perception amongst a, a lot of prescribers that in this drug the one we were working on patients just kind of did a little bit better and there was nothing they could actually put their finger on as to why that was so we really kind of leveraged that and we did something completely different. So as opposed to this very hard science kind of um, focused campaign, we we really kind of milked the emotion. And it was all about the relationships with these um, patients could now have pretty much what you were saying, Lisa. It was what, what that actually meant for the patient. It's all very well saying spewing out um, percentages and facts and figures. But what does that actually mean to the patient? And that made a huge difference. Well, and sometimes you have situations where drugs might be similar. And, and in our exactly. world, yeah. we, we never want someone to be disingenuous. But if your drug is similar to the other drug, 
and your people are telling a better story about it and they care more, you can gain a competitive advantage. So imagine if you've got one team that's going out saying the science, the science, the science, the science, the science, and you've got another team that understands at a very deep level the impact this has on patients, that second team is going to be the one that makes the extra sales call, that expresses more empathy and compassion. They're going to be more emotionally compelling as a team just because they have a different backstory in their head. And there's actually a lot of research that backs that up on um, people selling financial products, the ones that have deep empathy for their clients and understand the impact that saving for retirement and things like that can have actually do a significantly better job, even though their product is super similar to someone else, because they quite simply, they care more. Yeah, that makes, I guess humans respond to those sort of human gestures, I guess, which makes complete That's sense. Yeah, Paul. The did, of being human. Yeah, no, exactly. It sounds obvious now, doesn't it? But um, I know in pharma, historically, perhaps as well, it, it was very, very rationally led, very scientific. It was about the data. It was like data leading the sort of sales thing rather, rather than it being a story that's backed up by data. But mm. that has changed a lot. And um, I'm going to hand over Paul. Paul, you got your hand up. Do you want to ask a question? No, no, it, it was more a comment about what Lisa was saying okay. about, about, about the individual. And I, I remember years ago, I think it might even have been with you, Lee, but um, I was working on a treatment for um, alcohol dependency uh, and, you know, trying to get people um, not to drink too much. And as part of that, we were doing a patient video. And I remember that we chose a guy who didn't look the part. He looked um, like he was still having problems. He looked like he was still having difficulties because life is messy, right? Life isn't, I've got a problem, I will do this, and then it's solved. People spend years mm -hmm. getting over their problems, and we've all got uh, problems. I remember that we did a video and one of the things and Lisa was talking about these people are very scientific and looking at the data and financial guys who can be very cold and go, you know, show me the money and all that. Um, um, but I remember that in the video, the bit that really hit home to everybody. And in the end, we use it as a, as a as a campaign was that he was saying that the treatment had been successful. What is successful for him? Well, the fact that his daughter now trusted him to go to the wedding, trusted him to now give the father of the bride speech at the wedding. And mm -hmm. that's me. It's like, yeah. And, and I think the drug was like something like, oh, yeah, over two months, it cuts down your alcohol dependency by 62 percent or, or the need for a drink by 62 percent. OK, but the fact that, you know, I've got a daughter, other people have got kids. It's a human thing. People understand, you know, how big that speech is going to a wedding. It's, it's when he said that about what it meant to him, the emotional benefit, everyone, even the hard, hard no scientists understood what it meant for him to be to go you know, to give that speech and i think that and that that hit home and maybe because of the dopamine effect lisa was talking about that is mm -hmm. what in the end sold the, the drug the, the benefit not the 62 percent right. and, and, and the p-value i think one of the things that happens is a lot of times when we talk about emotional selling is people think misinterpret that to mean it's manipulative and it's glossing over the science and it's acting like something that it's not. And nothing could be further from the truth mm -hmm. because if you know that what you're selling has this very real and personal impact on people, like a guy's going to, his daughter's going to trust him to give the wedding speech, then you owe it to yourself and your organization to make sure that the science is absolutely accurate and that the financials are good because you got to stay in business. And so what we see is we see that emotional selling is simply 
helping you position the science in the most compelling yeah. way. I mean, look, I could give the example we have, and you can probably think of lots of examples where the science is there, yet people don't act. Logic makes you think emotionally. Just because you've proven the science doesn't mean people will act. If you're asking someone to change a prescribing habit, change a treatment protocol, uh, change just a habit, you there's got to be even to get a patient to be I love the word compliant, which is, you know, just what everyone wants to be compliant. If you want anyone to act, the logic and the science alone is not usually not enough reason. They need to have a vision of how life is better for them or someone else. That's what spurns us to show up as our best selves. It makes complete sense. Raj, did you want to add something? When I when I was working for a pharma company, would uh, on the marketing side, just before we'd um, kind of get everyone ready, certainly the the reps to go out onto the booth for three long hard days with nearly twenty thousand visitors at the congress. One of the things we'd do is to not just look at the brand campaign, which is obviously everywhere on a booth, etc., but really deep dive into what the what the emotions are for the patient and how to re re kind of really reconnect that with the doctor and the prescriber um so we we always felt that those kind of sessions which were kind of half a day in in nature uh really focusing on the patient their lives almost ethnographic really kind of empowered the sales reps but also got them to a point of empathy as well um yeah. which was uh, which was quite astounding to see from one year to the next where we didn't use that mode model and to see at congresses where we did train those reps in those um, in those kind of uh, modalities. Very interesting. And when the rep understands what's at stake for the patient, it, you know, it's we interviewed for the latest edition of Selling with Noble Purpose. We interviewed a number of people that had been in the military in combat in actually a number of different countries. And, you know, how could they act? in the face of, you know, dangers and things that most of us will never face. And it all came down to two things. It was commitment to a cause bigger than themselves and commitment to the team. And those are two emotions. And when you think about when you get sellers to understand, I worked at a company that had a drug that helped people that had headaches. And my husband suffers from headaches. And it's like when I say, oh, my husband suffers from headaches, what is left unsaid that people need to understand is, and he doesn't anymore, thankfully, is there are times when he had to go into a dark room and be absolutely unavailable to his family. There are times when his headache at work was so excruciatingly bad, he wasn't a good leader. I mean, just like Mm -hmm. this has a ripple effect. There were times when his wife rolled her eyes and was like, oh, he's got another headache. So I suppose I have to do everything again. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, like every aspect of this man's life. And it's mm-hmm. headaches. It's not even, you know, like like a debilitating, you know, rheumatoid arthritis where you can't walk. It's it's headaches where the person you look at them and if you didn't know, you know their eyes kind of squinting, you mm-hmm. wouldn't know they were anything but fine. But when the reps understand, when the doctors sit, when they go, oh, you know, the doctor can only see you if you come in at 530 in the morning or whatever. And the seller understands 
there's a guy out there having a really crappy marriage right now because he's having these headaches. If I can get to this doctor, there might be five guys like him who suddenly become a lot happier. The rep's going to show up at 530 in the morning. And, and it's not just trying to get people to work more in that way. It's they want to because they absolutely fundamentally care. And when yeah. we ignite that feeling of empathy in our sellers, we create a field force of energy that is unstoppable in the market and that will actually beat a company that may be better resourced because our reps have a completely different feeling. And their history is ripe with examples of people who beat out a better resource team simply because they were in it in a bigger way emotionally. Makes complete sense. So, so they've, they, when, when there's a purpose that they're working to, then they're going to be more successful inherently. That's absolutely. And all the research that we've done on this in the last 10 years is simply telling us what we already knew in our own hearts to be true. If I came to you and said, I need you to do these five things, and they were hard and they were difficult or they were boring, you'd go, all right, I'll try, Lisa. You know, I want to please you. Sure, I'll try. But if I said, I need you to do these five things because it's going to fundamentally make life better for about 500 people. And Lisa, I was wondering, so in terms of, you know, with brands or with organizations, how long does it, it sounds like it's in some ways, maybe it's quite an easy thing to do to find to find someone's purpose. But I'm guessing it's not the case. How long does it normally take to find that purpose and that purpose that can be kind of more ownable over the competition, for example? And is there a process for that? There is absolutely a process. And in most organizations, especially in healthcare. It is taking what's implicit and making it explicit. Because in healthcare, it's a it's an easier line. I mean, we've worked at some construction companies, which is a little harder line. So we worked with a concrete company once. I will tell you, concrete might not seem sexy, but you try living your life without <laughs> it. Holds up all the world. But besides that, but in healthcare, it's usually, I would say, to make it simple, a two-part process. The first part is finding your purpose. And in healthcare, it's usually there, but we have to make it explicit and say, this is exactly what that 10% improvement in mobility does. Roche has been very public about their purpose, doing now what patients need next. It's in the book. So there's that part. Then the part that takes a little bit longer, but we've done it a hundred times, is making it part of the behavior of the sellers and part of the decision-making process, because what you've got to do then, especially if people are trained in this very scientific approach, is show them how layering in an emotional element makes them more powerful. So we had to have a conversation about what the 10% means, using that as the example in mobility. And then as it, when people are science-based thinking people, they've been trained to take the emotion out of it. And that's because you don't want to make science-based decisions based on emotion. But what we need to show them is how once you've got the science, there is a skill to presenting it factually and in an emotionally compelling way. And so that usually takes some training. But once yeah. people see it and they see what good looks like, it's not that hard. And there's no going back then, I guess, once you, once you get to that point. It's kind of like once you've seen really good shoes, 
Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to go backwards once you've walked in really good shoes, because now you know the difference. What or who, and maybe you don't have, you don't have to go into names if it's inappropriate, but what or who has been the toughest challenge in terms of helping them as, as a person or organization find their purpose or, or find more emotion in what they do? Um, and I will name names because they gave me. Okay, per- great. <laughs> so, um, so the concrete company was a challenge and it's a company called Foundation Support Works there of Omaha, Nebraska. And it was a challenge in some ways because it's like, you know, we're doing concrete foundations for people's houses and basements. Where's the noble purpose in that? It's gritty, hard, tough work, sometimes out in the cold, sometimes out in the heat. But what we found was people that are doing that kind of work that tend to think, you know, I'm making this much an hour. When you give them a sight line into how people's homes are safer, how people's basements don't leak now, how buildings stand the test of time, they get very excited because in a lot of cases, their work has been very transactional. And they innately, like people in the military, understand if you're going to do this kind of bust ass hard work, it better mean something. So they were one of our most successful clients, actually. They ended up uh, winning their market. They franchised out all over the country, and they were voted a best place to work, which is kind of unusual for a construction company yeah, to be wow. a best place to work. So I'll tell you another one that was challenging in the beginning, and they are also in the book, a company called Atlantic Capital Bank, and they're bankers, and they felt like their purpose was money. Not surprisingly. And so to get a bunch of bankers to really understand and be able to articulate that their real story was the impact that money has on people's lives. And they're a commercial bank. So even in a commercial bank, it's even more about the money and about the rate and about the terms and all this. But to really be able to articulate as an organization that this goes way beyond money. It's what money is doing for people and businesses and communities. And when they started doing that as a regional bank, they took on a much larger competitor and they became number one in the market. And they, too, were voted the best place to work. They became differentiated in their space. And, and they will say with the, the CEO is on our website and has a video on our website talking about, you know, I was a numbers guy. He says numbers were my lingua franca, my love language. I came up mm-hmm. as a picture. And when I added this emotional element around the impact that that the numbers are having on people, he said everything changed in our whole organization. Wow. And that's on the website, on your website? Yeah, it is. If you just Google Selling with Double Purpose, you'll find our website. And Doug Williams, CEO of Atlantic Capital Bank, and he was actually on the cover of American Banker as like mid-market banker of the year. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I was going to ask on on the back of that as well, is is there like a difference, do you think, globally or culturally in different countries to how this is received and how it's implemented? Yeah, there is. So I'm, you know, as you can't tell for, as from the listeners, I'm the overly jubilant American where everything's awesome. <laughs> but what I will say in research all over the world, once we get beyond food and shelter, human beings have two fundamental needs, belonging and significance. Belonging is 
We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And significance is we want our contribution to matter. And this language of noble purpose hits on both of those two fundamental human needs, which transcend age, race, sex, country, etc. The differences that I've seen, because I've worked all over the world, is the, you know, the Americans and the Australians are like, hey, let's put it out there. Uh, people from other cultures may be more subtle and nuanced about it. And I have had to learn. I, I was speaking in front of this big um, Australian company once and they had embraced this. It, it, I'll go ahead and say who it was because they did very well with it. Uh, Flight Center, the largest travel company in the world. They're in Australia and they're wild and crazy. And when before I was going to speak to them, one of their leaders said, hey, we're really into this. We've all read your books. Uh, there's one thing, you know, as an American, you kind of say awesome a lot. So you need to chill. On the <laughs> awesome. So I said, I'm like, OK, you know, I listen. And so I'm sitting there and I wanted to get a feel for the place. So I'm listening to the other speakers and they're talking and every other word is like an F-bomb. And I'm like, OK, so apparently I can't say awesome, but I can curse like a freaking sailor. Um, so that was kind of interesting. <laughs> but, but I bring that up because. While there are differences in language in different cultures that I have learned and that leaders understand, the idea that you are part of something bigger than yourself and that your individual contribution matters, that transcends culture. It's a fundamental human need. You can read about it in the writings of Aristotle. Brilliant. Well, I was going to say that's awesome, but I'm not, but I'm not American. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but no, I, th um, I think that's it really from us. And it's been it's been really great. We've really appreciated and uh, it's been really interesting having you on on, on our podcast and um, highly recommend the book and um, and definitely worth checking out your website. And I hope um, hopefully we will get to work together very soon as well, because it's always a pleasure. And um, yeah, it's just been great. And, you know, we're firm believers in emotion. We're all emotional guys. Um, so um, it's music to our ears and uh, it's, it's great to see people like you making a difference out there. Thanks. You know, if I would say one thing to someone listening to this, my advice would be don't wait. Don't wait for your whole company to embrace this. Don't wait for your boss. Don't wait for your marketing materials. Think right now, how does what we're selling make a difference to real life human beings? Get that story locked and loaded in your own mind so it's in your brain every day when you wake up and start telling it to other people. You don't have to wait for the infrastructure or anything else. You can do this. Fantastic. Lisa, thank you very much. Thanks to the Naked Guys and obviously to all our listeners and uh, look forward to, to our next podcast. Thank you so much. Wow.